chapter 1. If you grab one of the Bibles in the baskets, um, I believe my son marked them all with a post-it note for you, for Genesis chapter 1. Um, or grab out your cell phone or whatever you want. We're going to be reading from it today. Um, we're beginning our series called The Story. And it's to understand the Bible as one continuous story about God and people. The Bible is actually a collection of books. It's a collection of history books, poetry books, biographies, prophecies. It was written by about 35 different authors over a period of 2,000 years. So most of these authors never knew one another. But we call it the Word of God because we believe that God inspired them to write and directed the writing of these scriptures and also the preservation of them Together, because together, it's amazing, like all these different writings written over 2,000 years, different languages, but they tell one complete story of God and his people. And this is what the Bible claims about itself. Second Peter, verses one, or chapter one, verses 20 through 21, says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is why we call the Holy Scriptures the Word of God. And God did this because he wants to reveal himself to us. And he wants to reveal his ways to us. Second Timothy Chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed. Again, not having its origins in human will, but it's God-breathed. And useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That just means right living. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means whatever you need to do in this life... God gave us his word. He breathed it so you can be thoroughly equipped to do it. It's a pretty great promise. Now, um, we don't believe that these these prophets were like robots that just, you know, God dictated it and they just wrote it down. We believe that they were uniquely created by God, just like you and I were. And so they wrote according to their own personal writing style. And that's why we see all these different writing styles in the Bible. It reflects the creativity of God. But ultimately, we believe God oversaw the writing and oversaw the preservation. As we study the Bible, um, there's a few things that I want you to know as, as we kind of go through the whole Bible. First is, it's God's timeless wisdom for all people everywhere. But it is also written by a specific author to a specific audience for a specific purpose. And when we know who wrote it and like why they wrote it and to who, when we understand that, then we understand how it's meant to be read and how to interpret it. And we can derive principles and then apply them to our lives today. Does that make sense? If you don't know the context it was written in, it's hard to know how to interpret it. Um, it's also important to know the Holy Scriptures were not written in English. They were written in Hebrew and Greek. And um, like most literature, the Bible is full of poetry and metaphors and figures of speech and hyperbole exaggerations. 
irony, stuff like that. So, for example, if I say on Thursday the Lions completely annihilated the Packers' offensive line, do I mean that they literally killed them? No, I just mean they went to Lambeau Field and completely humiliated them on national television. You know, and and there are figures of speech like that in the Bible, all through the Bible. And sometimes when we take something written in one language and then translate it to another language, those figures of speech get harder to understand and people start to read things literally that were made, that were meant to be taken metaphorically. Does that make sense? So that's something we need to be careful about when we read the Bible. We're starting our series, of course, in Genesis chapter 1 with a hotly debated creation account. And um, before I touch on that debate, we need to know why Genesis 1 was originally written. Who wrote it? Why was he writing it? What was the audience? Okay? So Genesis was actually written by Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We know this not only because the Jews have always believed this, but because the Bible says that he did. In fact, Jesus even credits the writing of those books to Moses. And so Moses, he wrote them to the Hebrew people who God had just rescued out of Egypt. Right? Many of you know this story of Moses, how God raised up Moses to rescue the Israelites from being slaves in Egypt. And he writes these, the Bible says he records the words of God. So the Israelites will know who God is. And they will know who they are. You see, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they had been living in Egypt for 400 years. Many of those years as slaves. And so the Egyptians had been teaching them about God. And so they were actually much more familiar with the Egyptian gods and Egyptian beliefs about God and humanity than they were their own. So, for example, the Egyptians believed that the supreme God was Amun-Ra, or simply Ra. He's the god of the sun and the sky. And every day... Ra would kind of ride in this boat across the sky with the sun in his headdress. And this is how the sun went across the sky. And every night, then Ra would travel through the underworld where he was unseen. And then he would rise up the next day and ride back across again, all right? Now, the interesting thing about what the Egyptians taught is that when Ra went through the underworld, every night... He had to battle an evil serpent. The evil serpent was named Apopo, Apopis. There you go. Apopis. And he was the god of darkness and chaos. And so um, that's what the, they taught the Israelites about God. What they taught the Israelites about humanity was that the pharaohs were sons of God or sons of Ra. And they were the embodiment or image of God on earth. And therefore, they had the power to rule and everybody must be in servitude towards the Pharaoh. So this is the 
framework that the Israelite people, the slaves, have when God frees them. Genesis 1 is a poem meant to teach them who God truly is and who humans are meant to be. It's a poem with a lot of metaphorical language. That doesn't mean it's not historically accurate. Poems can be historically accurate. Poems can also have scientific facts in them. I believe this one does. Um, I've studied the science of Genesis extensively, and I always find it very affirming, actually, to my faith. I think it's very interesting and very affirming. But um, I think the debate about how literally to take Genesis 1, things like when it says day, does that mean 24 hours, literally, or does that mean like a day and age and a span of time? I think when we get too wrapped up in those kind of debates, first of all, it causes unnecessary division. And secondly, we're kind of missing the point. Because Genesis 1 wasn't written to debate modern science. It was written to teach enslaved people who God is. And so we're going to read the poem today and... um, And look at it through the lens of what does it say about God? Okay? That's what we're going to focus on. Um, We're going to read the whole thing, but I just want to kind of break it down a little bit for you ahead of time. The poem, the form of it, is a common Hebrew form for a poem. Probably this was the first one, and then they just use this form over and over again. But it has a prologue, which is like um, Genesis... One through two. And then it is broken into six session, six, um, parts, the six days. And then there is an epilogue, which is Genesis two, one through three. All right. Don't always follow your chapter breaks when you're reading scripture. Read right through them, okay? Um, but this is, this is a form of the poem. So, if we just read the epilogue here. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's like the overarching subject statement for the poem, alright? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the earth, it's formless and empty. It has no form and it's not filled with anything. It's empty. And so what we're going to see is God is there and he's going to solve these two problems. First, he's going to form the earth and then he is going to fill it. All right. And so on the first day, he creates light and the realm of time. Second day, he creates sky, and so he's created the seas and the sky, that realm. The third day, he creates the realm of land, and then he goes about filling them. He fills this with the sun, moon, and stars. Here, he fills it with fish and birds and any other aquatic animals. And then here, he creates animals fills the dry land, and he creates humans, who are last, 
but not at all least. They are actually made in the image of God. God says, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule. So if you can just imagine how revolutionary this was for the Hebrew slaves. First of all, okay, the sun is not the God, guys. The one who rescued you created the sun. That's how amazing he is. And he made you also. And he made you in his image so that you can rule. It's not just Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not the only one who's in the image of God. You all are. And God has designed all of you to rule equally. Do you see this? This is like mind-blowing. So let's read it together, all right? And um, this is what we're going to do. We're going to read all the way through. It's a a lot to read. And I'm going to ask if you're able to stand to stand with me. And guys, don't stand quite yet. Okay. Um, You'll see the phrase, and God said, over and over again. At the, the beginning of every paragraph almost, it says, and God said. I want you to read that aloud with me, okay? Guys. And then, ladies, I'm going to give you just a few more words. Over and over again, there's the phrase, and God saw that it was good. Okay? So, ladies, I want you to read that phrase again. So, when we come to him, I'll say, gentlemen, and you will say, let's try that one more time. (laughs) Gentlemen, ladies. All right, all right, you got it. Okay, I'm going to take a drink of water. Why don't you stand as we read God's word together? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Gentlemen, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and morning the second day. Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the ground land. And he get, and the gathered waters he called seas. Then God said, That one caught me. It said then, not and. But go ahead. Gentlemen, go ahead. Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to its kinds. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. 
Let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, the days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. (laughs) Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly across the earth, above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move across the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And, And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God... <laughs> Go ahead. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for how you have created us and created this world. And we pray that you give us insight into your word today and into the creation you made, including ourselves, so that we may rule as you intended us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. (laughs) 
So I want to look at some of just the big truths that this passage teaches us about God. Like I said, sometimes we get so bogged down in the little itty-bitty details, we miss the big picture. So here's just some truths about God from Genesis 1. First of all, God speaks. He speaks. He's not silent. Second of all, this God, His Word, transforms chaos into order, life, and goodness. Every time. Every time He speaks, every time His Word goes forth, it transforms this chaoticness into something orderly and good and full of life. Third, God sees all of His creation. Like, he's diligent at this. He's like inspecting it. He sees his creation. And he biasly sees his creation as good. Over and over again. Like he has a bias for delighting in his creation. And they're like, yeah, that's good. I like it. That's that's his starting point. Alright? And fifth, he gives what is good. God always, everything that he does, every gift he gives is good and valuable. He not only gives humanity the earth and, you know, land and food, good food, but he gives them authority to rule. This is a God who shares what is good. And he's clearly not intimidated by humankind at all. Right? Like, he is not threatened by us. He makes us in his image. He tells us to rule and multiply. This is in stark contrast to a lot of the other creation myths from other religions. Um, I want to keep reading um, to learn a little bit more about the account. One of the good things that he gives us, it was already mentioned, was food, right? And um, in chapter 2, verse 9... It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Chapter 2 is kind of a retelling of the creation story, but not in a poem. It's a little more like a historical narrative style. But he says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So his intention right away was for humans to live eternally. He gave them the tree of life. Um, Skipping down to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So eat from the tree of life right next to it. (laughs) And all the other ones. Just don't eat this one, all right? Because then you'll have the knowledge of evil. And when you have the knowledge of evil, you'll die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. This is the only thing in all his creation that God says is not good, for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, a lot of damage has been done with this uh, word helper here. And um, so I just want... To kind of show you, the word in Hebrew is azer. 
And azer is used repeatedly throughout the Bible to refer to a helper and often to refer to God as our helper. Just because someone helps you doesn't mean they're weaker than you. Okay, you can be helped from someone stronger, from someone of equal strength, or from someone who is weaker. To know what kind of helper Eve is supposed to be, we got to keep reading. Um, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed it up, up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So Eve, she's not made from the heel. She's not made from the head either. She's made from the rib, which is a sign of equality. And the man actually instantly recognizes this. In verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's saying, she's made of the same stuff I am. That's what that means. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And just like woman and man sound a whole lot alike, in Hebrew, these two words sound almost identical. It's like the most equal-sounding thing he can call her and still make a distinction between the two of them. And I think that's important for us to know, because there's a lot of messed-up ideas about gender in our world But from the Bible's perspective, how God created man and woman is that they are very much equal, but there is a distinction. All right, so, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. Continuing on, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this is like, if we're reading this, all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? There's a talking serpent? You know, like where did this come from? But the Israelites, when Moses is telling them this, they knew who the serpent was. Who is the serpent? Yeah, he's the evil god of darkness and chaos. What was the world in before God started creating it? What state was the world in? It was chaos and it was darkness. There was no light. So what is the agenda of this serpent? To take it back. Yeah, to take the world back to a state of darkness and chaos. And he does that by tempting the woman to doubt God's word. Did God really say, and and this is interesting, he goes to the woman first, because she's weaker? No, because she actually wasn't created when God gave the command. So she learned the command from Adam. Okay? So that's why he targets her first. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. He didn't say they couldn't touch it. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from 
it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see how tricky it is? They're already like God. They don't need to eat this fruit to become like God, but he makes them doubt God's word. He makes them doubt their own worth, making them feel like they need to become more. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was right there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed some fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Next week, we will talk about the consequences of their rebellion. Um, But this week, I just want to focus on what this teaches about God, the truth, and also the lies that we're tempted to believe. So first of all, one of the lies we often believe is that God is silent and we've got to figure these things out on our own. Or that it's just too hard to hear from him and so we've got to figure these things out on our own. Like Eve or Adam could have asked God about what the serpent was saying. But they didn't. And we do that all the time. We think that part of being mature and growing up is that we got to figure it out on our own. But the truth is God speaks. He speaks over and over again. And he will speak to us. Another lie is that God's word isn't powerful or trustworthy. Did God really say that? Like, did you really hear him? Are you really sure that you can understand God's word? And, and if you, like, if he says you're going to die, you're not going to die. Like, if, he, if God says that's bad for you, it's not really bad for you. We're tempted to believe that God's word isn't really trustworthy and that it's not powerful, that what it says isn't going to happen. But the truth is God's word is very powerful. He says that his word always goes out and never returns void, but it goes out and accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. God's word always accomplishes its purposes, always transforms. And specifically, God's word transforms chaos into order and goodness and life. Another lie is that that God doesn't see and God doesn't really care. He doesn't really know what's going on. But this God is constantly checking out his creation. He is constantly seeing. One of the very, well, it was the second verse that my dad had me memorize. was Proverbs 15.3 that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching over the evil and the good. You can imagine why my dad had me memorize that as a kid. But um, <laughs> but God, he is looking. He does see you. He does know what's going on in your life. And he's ready to speak to you. And if you listen and you let his word come alive in your life, it's going to transform the chaos of your life into what? Order, goodness, and life. Every time. The next lie is that God biasly judges his creation as bad. 
that when God sees his creation, he is just always disappointed and we can't measure up. And it's like, mm, 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 mm. But the truth is God has a bias for viewing his creation with grace. That he loves his creation. It doesn't mean that he doesn't call sin sin. He does. And when we get to the, you know, story about Noah, it talks about how God looks on the earth and he's so sad by what's happening and he wishes he had never even made us. So God does get disappointed. And sometimes he gets downright angry. But we have to understand that's not his starting position. His starting position and bias is to see his creation as good and to see us with grace. And over and over again, as we read through the stories of the Bible, you will see God call people righteous who are not. People who are severely messed up. God will say, I love him. That's a righteous person. God has a bias of seeing you with grace. And the last lie is that God withholds what is good. I think this is one of the reasons why we often don't learn or don't apply what we know about God's word is because we just tend to think that if we really obey this, God is going to withhold good things from us. And we're going to end up miserable, you know, alone. Okay, let's just talk about that one for a moment. Let's just talk about that one. Because I think that's one of the biggest ones people struggle with. Is that if I follow God, I'm I'm not going to... He's going to rob me of romantic love. What was the one thing God said was not good in his creation? God gives good gifts. He gives good gifts. And that is why we need to be committed to learning his word so we know what his good gifts are. And a lot of times, yes, they don't seem good at the beginning. (laughs) There are things that God calls us to do that are tough. But if we trust him, we will see that it ultimately he is taking the chaos of our life and he is bringing order to it. And sometimes that's a bit of a painful process. But he is taking the chaos of our life and he is bringing order and goodness and life to us. And so that's why we commit to studying the word of God. So it can do that in our lives. And that's why our children, we want our children to know the word of God. And not just to know the stories, but know how to apply them. There's like levels of knowledge. There's like knowing, oh yeah, Noah was this dude in the Bible who built an ark. That's one level of knowledge. There's another level of knowledge, like what the heck does that mean for my life today? And when I come up against a circumstance, what can I pull from here to apply? We want ourselves, we want our kids To have that kind of knowledge. And so I just want to challenge you who are parents to get your kids here every Sunday. I mean, you would not let your kid get away with going to school once or twice a month. 
The knowledge of the word of God is essential to their lives. It's essential for them to know how to take the chaos of their life and bring God's order and goodness and life to it. So bring them, okay? We have curriculum, we have teachers, and and we will help teach your kids the wisdom of the Word of God. As we're going through this story, um, we're using this resource. It's called The Story. And it's selections from the Bible, the Old and New Testament. There's 31 chapters. We're reading a chapter a week. It starts this week, okay? There's a little bookmark in it that tells you what chapter to read which week. But guys, just hearing me on Sunday mornings is not going to be enough of the Word of God in your life. So you need to read it. And read it to your kids. There's books for kids too. Same 31 chapters that correspond with what you are reading as an adult. If you can't afford these, there have been several people who have generously donated. So just let me know. And we'll get you one, okay? And we'll get you one so you can read God's word to your kids as well. So they can read it at home and then come here and talk about how to apply it. Um, But that's one big takeaway I want you guys to have. That God's word, it always, always, every single time, transforms the chaos of life into order, goodness, and true life. The second big takeaway is that you are his image bearer. Which means when you speak the word of God, what do you do? You transform the chaos of this world into order and life and goodness. That's what you're put here on the earth to do. And so... That's one reason we need to know it. Not just so we can transform the chaos of our lives, but so we can transform the chaos of our families and our communities. When we gather um, on Thursdays, Thursdays at 10.15 to pray, that's what we're doing. We're going, we're assuming our role as an image bearer of the Lord. And we go into his presence The Bible says, enter his presence, enter his courts with thanksgiving. So we start with singing a couple songs, because that's how we're supposed to go into the Lord's presence. And then we listen to his word first. Because as his image bearers, we're not supposed to declare our word, we're supposed to declare his word. So we listen to his word And then we pray. And people will go in different places of the sanctuary. And everybody will be kind of praying off on their own. And then we come together and we pray as a big group. And if people, nobody has to pray out loud in front of others. We we don't necessarily do that. We'll have a few people who will pray out loud in front of others. But not everyone. And um, I'm going to be sharing with that group um, prayers that I've written from scripture. I actually have like 200 and... 60-some, I don't know the exact number, of prayers written from Scripture. Um, And it's not hard to write a prayer from Scripture. Uh, For example, the first verse my dad taught me, uh, Ephesians 3. Uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. (laughs) 
Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Let's see Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. And um, so turn it into a prayer. It's very simple. Lord, let our children obey their parents for this is right. Let them honor their father and mother because you have promised that if they do, Lord, they it will go well with them and they will enjoy long life on the earth. Do you see how simple that was? Yes. Okay, so that's a freebie, parents. You can start praying that one. It's going to make your life and your children's lives a lot easier. Um, but that's what intercessory prayer is. When we take, we go into God's presence, we listen to His Word, and then we speak it out. And we, through that, when it was claiming our place as His image bearer, we're able to transform chaos into order and goodness and life. It's powerful. Word of God says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Much more powerful than all those self-help books and podcasts you listen to right if you can come thursdays at 10 15 please come if you have little ones bring them that's okay we'll put out toys and i mean it's people praying in different parts of the room out loud so there's people you know so if your kid is running around talking that's no big deal because there's other people talking anyways um but come if you can um And I hope that the rest of you, I know that time does not work for a lot of people. Find other groups to pray with. I'm going to end our time in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. And the worth that it ascribes to both you and to us. I think of all the other creation accounts of how human beings were made. Like sometimes we're vomited out of gods or gods are like fighting and cut off body pieces and that's what human beings come out of and things like that. But no, your word alone says that we were created intentionally on purpose because you wanted us, you created us in your image and you created us to rule and to multiply, to prosper God, there is no other religion that puts that much value on human life. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for creating this world good. For all the good things you gave us. All the good food. the animals, all the good things to do and to rule over and lead. And God, I pray that you will redeem us and show us increasingly what it means to be your image bearers and rule over our own lives and over our families and over our communities, God, in a way that's is according to your will, bringing your word into reality. God, teach us to be image bearers who speak your word and pray your word so that this world is increasingly transformed from a place of chaos and darkness to a place of order and goodness and life.
God, help us to believe that. Because I know even for myself, like I continually doubt, does this stuff really work? As God's word is really as true and powerful as it claims to be. It's what we've been debating and doubting all the way back since our first encounter with the serpent. God, help us win that battle. And not doubt you or your word or who you created us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.